Hello, and welcome to the Nutcast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedict Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 70th episode of the Nutcast entitled, Should I Stay or Should I Go? No, wait, Should I Stay or Should I Go? An analysis of Game of Thrones, John 9, in which Lord Snow attempts to abandon his watch in order to join Rob in seeking vengeance? Vengeance for Ned, only for his friends and his LC to tell him he's being an emo and dumb and ugly, and his true heroic destiny lies in the north, beyond the wall. A lot like Tyrion 9 last week, this is one of those chapters where you can hear the end credits music ramping up at the end as you learn that John is going beyond the wall next season with Elsie Mormont and all the Night's Watch characters and they handled that wonderfully in Game of Thrones season one and you can feel that very strongly here that this is a great uh, connective tissue between John's story in the first book and the second book. That still doesn't mean we're in love with the tone as we have been throughout John's story <laughs> in book one but structurally speaking in terms of where John needs to be it definitely comes through yeah it does come through but i do have to say i kind of prefer the tv show's ending to this one because it does kind of fall into some things that happen in a clash of kings uh, save for john and, and aria for in this case so yeah it's gonna be a very exciting chapter this week as always and as always this chapter is most exciting because it's brought to you by our small council patrons on patreon our hand of the king wolfman zach grand maester tim bob lord commander of the king's guard mark n lord travis master of ships and warn of the waves sir keith J, master of whispers Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Warden of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whisperers. Lord Baby the Onion Baby. Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse. Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gem that was Promised. The High Bearded Priest. The Blue Ringed Octoling. Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King. And Lady Zena Valerian. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warnings, who say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, <laughs> one of our aforementioned small council patrons, who asks, Okay, I keep wondering about what sorts of adventures John will get into while he's inside Ghost. He definitely might just hang around the wall, but I wonder if he might go far north of the wall where humans can't easily go, or whether he might fight Ramsay's dogs, as hinted by George's season 4 script, or have a more spiritual, scattered, Varamir-esque journey. What do y'all speculate will be the significance of his interlife period? That's a terrific question. What do you think, Jeff? What are we looking at with John's chapters and ghosts? Something that we've talked about a fair amount here, and we've talked, and you and I have talked about on social media, is that... Why would John have multiple ghost chapters or have a significant amount of time in Ghost? All you have to do is look at John in season six and beyond in Game of Thrones. And what I mean by that is that John comes back really no worse for the wear. Yes, he's a little more dour at points, but that's really the extent of his transformation. That's something that I think is going to be quite different come the Winds of Winter. We have a lot of foreshadowing from in the form of Varamir six skins. In his prologue for A Dance with Dragons, in his warging of, go warging of ghosts, warging of different animals and different wolves, and seeing how that transforms him, there's that line that I'm going to butcher, but basically it's like the, it's, the longer that you're inside of an animal, the more you become the wolf and the more the wolf becomes kind of the man. So you have that kind of fusion of the kind of animal-human thing going on there. So we've talked a lot in the past about how John might come back much more wolfish. 
add in the resurrection factor from R'hllor. We've talked about that as well. But this question focuses specifically on Ghost and what that's going to mean. What are, what are the adventures that John might have in Ghost? I, I am curious because George has said something. He said something back in 2012 about that we'll go farther north than we've ever gone before. Does that mean that John is going to be that person or is that going to be Bran? It's kind of an open question in my in my opinion. I think it's more likely to be Bran than John, but I can see John going north and discovering the purpose of the White Walkers or something like that. That's a great possibility for sure. I think ghosts can obviously range further afield than a human being can north of the wall, or at least with uh, somewhat more protection from, from the weather and the White Walkers and such, ghosts being a magical being especially. On the other hand, I, I do like the idea of him fighting Ramsay's dogs, as hinted at by that George script. Depending on how the timeline goes, if John is hasn't been resurrected by the time the Bolton downfall happens in the Winterfell area, that would be a great way to kind of resolve the dilemma people have been talking about since season five of the show, where it definitely seems like Stannis is going to survive at least the Battle of Ice in the books, but there also does seem to be a setup for some kind of John Ramsay confrontation, so maybe that's the form it actually takes, is via Ghost. So I think I think there are a number of adventures. I, I lean towards Ghost sticking in the wall area going south and the north of the wall stuff belonging to Bran just because Bran can roam the field on the astral plane as well and see visions and flashbacks of you know similar to in a fashion to season six so that might be more his domain yeah I can I definitely think that Bran's more likely going to be the one who's going to go the farthest north especially in the form of potentially summer too we can have Bran working summer and then summer going north out of the cave if he chooses to, but more likely I like your idea of the astral plane brand going farther north than ever than anyone's ever gone before. So I think it's 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 a really open question, and that's like we've said I think several times in the past now. John's storyline I feel like is the most open of all of the major plot characters. I mean we have pretty solid ideas of what's going to happen with Daenerys and Tyrion, Sansa and Arya. We've seen a lot of their plot points, at least in Game of Thrones the TV show, but John's besides a few benchmarks, him being resurrected, him becoming king in the north, him and Danny uniting together, I feel like a lot of what's going to happen is very open-ended. And I'm very excited to see what's going to happen with John in The Winslow Hunter, especially in the form of ghosts. I am very curious about the effect of magic on John because we have not yet really had a character as magically touched as someone coming back from the dead. You know, Catelyn Stark ceased becoming a point-of-view character after dying. Barak, Barak Dondarrion, also not a POV character. I mean, we get something of their personality and some of their outlook on life from various other point of view chapters. But that this is the reason why I think that John is going to have point of view chapters as well, beyond you know, sort of knowing that John will have some ghost chapters. And that's going to be interesting. It might be one of the reasons why The Winds Winter is taking so long to rise, because George has never really gone that deep into what the magic of his universe looks like in the form of a point of view character. Well, I mean, you were talking about Varamir's prologue, about Lady Stoneheart, Beric Dondarrion, all these characters that seem to exist in large part to prepare us for this moment, this deep plunge into the life of a fractured second mind, resurrected warg being that is Jon Snow filtered through Ghost. And that's that's hard stuff to write at, at the best of times, but coming off all that build-up and groundwork and trying to integrate it into all these other northern plot mechanics going on at Winterfell and beyond the wall, yeah, I imagine that's probably one of the sticking points for sure. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see it, not just for the imagery, but for how it intersects with, intersects with the kinds of big dramatic choices that John is making in, in chapters like this one. Is, is John going to be aware of what happened while he's in Ghost? Is he going to want to come back to his human body? Is he going to fight that process? I'm curious as to what his, what his relationship is going to be and what he's going to take away from it. And I understand why the show 
kind of took a more nihilistic view of the afterlife and John's position in it just because visually and in terms of the tone, they just were never going to take a deep dive into that kind of religious metaphysical stuff. But in the books, it's a much different matter. And it's definitely something I'm excited for. So thank you, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, for the question. And thank you for being one of our small council patrons. If you are interested in becoming one of our patrons, you can you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoef, where you could get bonus episodes, show notes, early access, and Q&A, like the question that Lord Baby the Onion Baby just asked. So again, thank you for the question. And now we are on to the synopsis for Game of Thrones, John 9. John attempts to calm a horse who seems really not on board with what John's about to do here. And because this is the North, and because this is a John chapter, an icy cold wind is following him around the stable that he's found himself in. He calls for ghosts. It's also the night. Hmm. It kind of seems like there will. this might be a long night for John. Wow, George, just the master of subtlety, guys, with his imagery. Just so masterful. But wait, why is John in the stable at night with the cold wind following him around? Well, you see, John is a teenager, and he's about to leave the Night's Watch. But Samuel was there, trying to stop him from leaving. John, you can't. I won't let you. John tells Sam to get out of the way, that he doesn't want to hurt him, but he will ride him down if he has to. When Sam tells John that he has to listen to him, John puts his spurs into his horse and rides for Sam. The boy holds his ground until the very last moment, jumping aside just as John knew he would. (laughs) Wow, geez, John. You don't seem like you're in the best state of mind to be making these kinds of choices and decision making. Now outside, John reckons that anyone who's looking off the wall will be looking to the north rather than the south. He hopes that Samuel doesn't go off and narc on him to Elsie Mormont, and he figures that he won't be much of a threat given how scared Sam is of the good Elsie. All the same, John hopes Sam is uninjured. He flexes his hand, still hurting, thanks for asking, but it feels somewhat better with the wrappings off. But now that he's outside, John takes note of the scenery and goes over his plan. Moonlight silvered the hills as he followed the twisting ribbon the King's Road. He needed to get as far from the wall as he could before they realized he was gone. On the morrow, he would leave the road and strike out overland, through field and bush and stream, to throw off pursuit. But for the moment, speed was more important than deception. John needs to get gone quick, fast, in a hurry, because he knew that Mormont got up early. And though Sam probably wouldn't go to Mormont by his own volition, he would probably end up fessing up to the LC if he interrogated him. Regardless, they knew he'd be gone at first light when John didn't get Mormont's breakfast and then found Longclaw in John's otherwise empty bed. It had been hard to abandon the sword, but John was not so lost to honor as to take it with him. Even Jorah Mormont had not done that when he fled in disgrace. Now, if you've ever imagined that your most noble act is not stealing your family's birthright, congratulations, you're Jorah Mormont. Yay. John knows that his betrayal would hurt Mormont, but the thing of it is John feels that whatever he does means betrayal in one direction or another. John wishes he could speak to the Septons who could speak to the gods on his behalf, but the old gods only heard and did not speak. Hmm. Castle Black fades behind John and he pushes his horse ahead to the holdfasts and farming villages where he hopes to trade his mare for a fresh mount. And he needs a change of clothing too. Sure, he might be able to steal those clothes, but he had to get out of his Night's Watch garment pretty soon or face anger and suspicion from the people living north of the Neck. And it'd be even worse when word came from Amon's ravens about John's desertion. Not even Winterfell would open its gates to John, the deserter. Still, John has a pretty clear vision of Winterfell even in the months after he'd left. The sights, smells, tastes, and sounds. They're all still there for John. And it was those memories that were pushing him south. Not even Mormont's gift to Longclaw could turn John aside from his family. And while Amon had been tested three times and chose honor all those times, that was Amon, not John. Even now, John cannot decide whether the maester had stayed because he was weak and craven or because he was strong and true. Yet he understood what the old man had meant about the pain of choosing. He understood that all too well. 
John thinks back to Tyrion, telling him that most men would deny a hard truth rather than facing them. And now this teen boy was done with denials and a world that couldn't give a fuck about teenage white boys. He was who he was. Jon Snow, bastard and oathbreaker, motherless, friendless, and damned. Oof, John boy. <laughs> uh, John thinks some more super deep thoughts about how he'd be an Ennio Morricone anti-hero in the shadows who couldn't even speak his name. He'd have to live a lie. <laughs> God, man. I mean, I was once 14, 15 years old, too, so I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And John would serve at Rob's side to avenge Ned, his father, his not-father's death. And Rob would smile at seeing John, right? No, probably not, kiddo. And even John can't see Rob smiling at his presence. And there was that instance where Ned had beheaded a Night's Watch deserter, telling Garrett that he took vows to the old gods and the new before he beheaded him. John wonders what Ned would do if the deserter was Benjamin. Would Rob welcome John the dessert to his side? John's fingers start to throb with pain, and he pushes his horse into a gallop down the King's Road, as if to outrun his doubts. John, being a teenager, of course, is unafraid to die, but he doesn't want to go out like some chump, like a deserter. He wants to die with sword in hand, fighting the Lannisters. He was no true Stark, had never been one, but he could die like one. Let them say that Eddard Stark had fathered four sons, not three. Ghost accompanies John on his mad rush south for a time, but just before they get to Molestown, Ghost stops and just looks at John, probably asking John to stop being such a goddamn moron. Ghost is officially the rear avatar for all of John's chapters here on out. John finds scattered lights flickering through the trees, indicating Molestown. Only a few of the buildings were visible, and for a good reason. Apparently, three quarters of the town was underground. The broth was even underground with a wooden shack and a red lantern atop. Okay, I get this, George. It's the Red Lantern District of Molestown. Nice. John reflects on how the men of the Night's Watch go digging for, quote, buried treasure, i.e. hiring sex workers, and how that was oath-breaking, but no one seemed to care, which um might want to pull up a copy of those vows and refresh yourself on those, John. No worries. You'll get reacquainted with them soon enough. South of Molestown, John finally pulls the reins up and slows his mare to a walk. He dismounts, shivering from the cold, finds a bank of melting snow, and splashes his face with the cold water until his cheeks get all tingly. His fingers ache and his head pounds. And why is that? I am doing the right thing, John told himself. So why do I feel so bad? John walks the horse for a while down the narrow King's Road and considers that racing south in the darkness was stupid. Why was he acting so foolishly? Did he want to die? A scream of a distant frightened animal makes John look up as the mare whinnies. John wonders if Ghost had found a midnight snack. He calls for Ghost, but only a wise owl answers by flying away. Take a hint, John. Come on, man. John wolfs down. Yep. The cheese and biscuits. But as he finishes the apple, he hears horses coming from the north. He leaps atop his horse and then pauses, realizing that they'd hear him if he gallops south. So he dismounts and leads his horse behind a thicket of gray-green sentinel trees, telling his horse to be quiet. Hiding in the trees, John wonders if these riders might be the people from Molestown, but why in the world would they be riding in the middle of the night? Finally, the hooves grow loud, their voices near. Certain he came this way? We, we can't be certain. He could have ridden east for all you know, or left the road to cut through the woods. That's what I do. In the dark? Stupid. If you didn't fall or if one of your horses broke your neck, you get lost and wind up back at the wall when the sun came up. I would not, Gren's son peeved. I'd just ride south. You could tell the south by the stars. What if the sky was cloudy, Pip asked. Then I wouldn't go. It's John's friends who've come to find him. Halder says he thinks that he heard something, but he isn't entirely sure. John realizes that it was Sam who had gotten the boys together to ride after John, and he damned Sam and his friends for riding for him. 
John's friends argue more about whether they heard something or not, but then John sees Ghost out of the corner of his eye. The direwolf jumps in front of John and his horse, giving away John's position. John tries running away, but all his buds are on him in an instant. They tell him to stop. John draws his sword. His friends surround him. What do you want with me, John demanded. We want to take you back where you belong, Pip said. I belong with my brother. We're your brothers now, Gren said. Toad puts in that the Night's Watch will behead John for a deserter and adds that this is something so stupid that even Gren would do it. I would not, Gren said. I'm no oathbreaker. I said the words, and I meant them. John tries to defend himself. Yeah, he, he said the words too, but the Lannisters murdered John's dad. This is war, and Rob is fighting it. The boys already know about that, though, Sam had told them. They're sorry about what happened to Ned, but ultimately it doesn't mean shit, John. You said the words. You can't take them back. You can't leave. John protests that he has to go, but then the boys start reciting the vows. John angrily tells them that he knows the words of the Night's Watch vows. He doesn't understand why they won't let him go. When they keep going through the verses, John curses them and starts brandishing a sword. Pip approaches John and his horse reaching for the reins. So here are your choices, John. Kill me or come back with me. John lifts his sword and lowers it, damning them all. He'll ride back. No need to be bound. John also gives Ghost the side eye for narking on him, but Ghost just looks at him, quote, knowingly. Love that. The ride back is unmemorable to John, save for the fact that it seems shorter going north than coming south. Hmm. They get back in an hour before dawn, and John notes that Castle Black didn't seem like home on this return. They could take him back, John told himself, but they could not make him stay. John plans to bide his time, making them think that he was good and non-turn cloaky, and when the time came, he would get on the road again to join Rob in his war. In the stables, Sam greets John, telling John that he's glad they found him, but John ain't glad. At daybreak, John gets over to the kitchens to fetch Elsie Mormont's breakfast, boiled eggs, fried bread, ham steak, and a bowl of wrinkled plums. Not so delicious. He carries the meal back to Mormont's new chambers in the King's Tower and finds her Elsie awake at the window seat with Bloodraven, <clears throat> I mean Mormont's Raven, perched on his shoulder. John orders some beer and John crushes a lemon with his fist to let the juice drain into the cup, just like the Elsie likes. Doubtless you love your father, Mormont said when John brought him his horn. The things we love destroy us every time, lad. Remember when I told you that? Yeah, John remembers, but he ain't about talking about Ned's death with Mormont. Mormont tells John to never forget and that John needs to hold on to hard truths. Oh, one more thing, John. Was your moonlight ride so tiring? John is flabbergasted. How did the LC know about this? Well, because Mormont is smart, according to Mormont, of course. Amon had said that John would go anyways. Mormont said he'd be back. Honor set you on the King's Road and honor brought you back, John. My friends brought me back, John said. Did I say it was your honor? John says that they killed his dad. How is he supposed to sit around after that happened? Well, Mormont says that they kind of expected John to leave all the same. That's why they put a watch on him. If his friends hadn't snatched John up, Mormont's men would have. And they wouldn't have been so friendly with John like his friends were. Besides, not like John has a horse with wings or anything, right? <laughs> not yet. John does his best. I'm a man-grown stance and says he's ready to die given the penalty for desertion. But Mormont doesn't want to kill John. Technically, John hasn't deserted. And you don't plan on deserting again, right, John? Um, John goes off silent. Mormont challenges John about his dad. Y you can't bring him back, boy. You don't want to do that anyways. Hell, this was something that you saw when Arthur and Jaffer Flowers tried to kill the shit out of us here in the Night's Watch. Besides, Rob is fighting, yes, with an army. What the hell are you bringing to Rob's side that he doesn't already have? Some sort of Lightbringer magic sword or something? John doesn't have an answer to Mormont's challenges, so Mormont continues talking about how his sister Mage Mormont and her daughters are all in Rob's army, most likely. And while Gior can't stand his sister, he still loves her. 
even if she ends up getting killed in the war. But he won't head off to fight alongside of her. He said his vows. His place is here. Where is yours, John? I have no place, John wanted to say. I'm a bastard. I have no rights, no name, no mother, and not even a father. The word would not come. I don't know. Mormont knows, though. Shit's getting bad up here, John. The cold winds are rising. The shadows are lengthening. Herds of elk and mammoths are moving south and east towards the sea. Rangings from the Shadow Tower are finding abandoned villages, but they can't, but they can see fires burning against distant mountains. Corrin Halfhand, blessed be his name, enhanced interrogated a wildling who had said that Mansrayer was getting a huge army together in some secret stronghold of the mountains, and no one seems to know why. And it's not just Benjen that's gone missing. Lots of rangers are disappearing north of the wall. So really, John, do you think all this shit is happening up here is less important than Rob's War in the Riverlands? John isn't sure, but Mormon is. God save us, boy. You're not blind and you're not stupid. When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? John hadn't considered that perspective. He agrees with Mormont that the Iron Throne isn't as important as what's occurring up here at the Wall. Still, Mormont isn't entirely sure why Ned sent John to the Wall. But he knows that the blood of the First Men flows in John's veins. The First Men had built the Wall, after all, and they had memory of things that were largely forgotten. And John has ghosts, too. John had saved Mormont. I think you are meant to be here, and I want you and that wolf of yours with us when we go beyond the wall. Oh shit, beyond the wall? Hell yeah. John wants to do some war shit up north. Or, you know, go, go find out whatever happened to Benjamin. That, that, that's important too. They gotta find out what's going on all the same. Maybe they'll even ride against Vance Raider or the others or anything else out there. And Mormon is commanding the ranging himself. But that leaves the question of John's loyalty still hanging in the air. John, as the L.C. Stewart would squire for Mormon in battle... But that shit won't fly if Mormont can't trust his squire not to run away. So I'll have an answer from you, Lord Snow, and I will have it now. Are you a brother of the Night's Watch, or only a bastard who wants to play at war? John straightened himself and took a long breath. <sighs> Forgive me, Father. Rob. Arya. Bram. Forgive me. I cannot help you. He has the truth of it. This is my place. I am yours, my lord. Your man. I swear it. I will not run again. Our Elsie snorts and tells John to get his sword on. And that is a Game of Thrones, John 9. Two chapters go, boys and girls, and we are done with the Game of Thrones. Very, very exciting. But we still have to talk about this chapter, which I'm afraid is like one of my least favorite John chapters. But I mean, I, I apologize in advance. I mean, there's plenty of stuff to like unpack in this chapter, but I, I really... I really feel like this chapter reminds me a lot of like John's first chapter, which Em and I were both like not super enamored with. If you guys remember back in like episode five, I want to say, where at the Feast of Winterfell. I mean, but there's lots of stuff to unpack in that chapter. There's lots of good stuff to unpack in this chapter too. It's just not my favorite. And it's mostly because George writes John as a realistic 15 year old kid. And maybe I'm seeing a little bit of myself reflected in that. And, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of my own self loathing reflected in this podcast. So, Emmett, what did you think of this chapter? Well, no one likes seeing their own adolescent self-loathing reflected back at them, and we've had our fun with the morose adolescent tone of John's chapters, but it, it really has all been in service of a well-constructed arc that has been leading to this moment. John's temporary rebellion against and abandonment of his Night's Watch vows is rooted in every previous beat, the ways he's come to feel at home at Castle Black and the ways he hasn't. He's recoiling from Eamon's example in his last chapter like touching a hot stove, but even as he tries to commit himself to his new path as a romantic outcast in exile, the doubts crop up immediately. He feels that Ned Stark-shaped hole inside we've been talking about with all of Ned's kids, and 
yet it conflicts with the real attachments he's made in his time at the Wall. And once again, the great theme of A Game of Thrones is the fall from grace, and in John's case, that's tied to his coming of age. You get that image in this chapter of the LC breaking his egg while he's, he's talking to John and reaching and tasting the yolk inside, and you think about John as Aegon Targaryen in the show canon, and John is the egg. He's the Aegon kind of being his shell's being broken open and he's emerging he's killing the boy and letting the man be born in this chapter basically yeah i think that's a really good metaphor that i did never picked up before you just mentioned it. i think that's really really cool I, I think like in killing the boy john like i said is acting awfully adolescent here which you know again make, makes sense he's 15 years old and he's dealing with the emotional fallout from his alleged father's death and he knows that rob is on a righteous crusade to quote avenge his father and he knows also that there's a lot of dangers posed to his siblings too he at some level knows that Arya and sansa are captives of the lancers down in king's landing or he suspects as much at the, at the same time though this chapter emphasizes that john has another family now the very people that he's been leading and molding into a brotherhood you know we, we've talked a lot about in john's mid arc in a game of thrones how John takes a lot of advice from a lot of these mentor figures and transforms that into building these these boys up into a fighting force, not just a fighting force, a good fighting force, but also friends, friends, a band of brothers, if you want to go with that, that sort of imagery there. And, you know, Mormont kind of ties it all together at the end, making a persuasive argument, as well as getting John's blood up at the prospect of fighting his own war, that leads John to abandon his initial folly of betraying the Night's Watch and fleeing south. But there's something lacking in Mormont's argument. You know, why doesn't he frame the decision to stay at the wall as protecting John's family? I really want to talk about that, and I will at the very end of this podcast. Still, uh, all the same, we probably should frame this discussion properly and talk about John in the context of Ned's death. Because, you know, all of the all of the star kids that we've encountered so far, Bran, Arya, Sansa, as well as Catelyn in the next chapter and Rob Stark are going to be operating in the wake of Ned's death and jo every one of their reactions is unique to their character characterization by George and unique also to the narrative. And I think that's a really cool way that George frames Ned Stark's death and all of the falling dominoes and all of the effects that it has on these, on these kids. Cause they are kids ultimately. I think you put it perfectly a lot like the red comet with which it's associated. Ned Stark's death is used by George as this lens to examine all these different storylines and what makes them the same and what makes them different. And you can see that just in the relationship to how Stark and Winterfell that is, is brought to the fore for all these characters by Ned's death. And all of Ned's trueborn children, even as they reel from his death, have this direct attachment to Winterfell and Stark identity in which they can take comfort, and that's something that Jon has always lacked. Bran and Rickon can respond to Ned's death by taking solace in the crypts, as we saw in Bran 7, but for Jon, as we're going to see throughout the series, the crypts haunt his nightmares, and they're a, a symbol of his lack of connection to House Stark. He's going to find no comfort there. Sansa and Arya, for all the, the hell they go through trying to get back to home and family, they have no contrary allegiances. They have nothing holding them back from longing for home. It's a fairly uncomplicated emotion for them. As we'll see when Stannis offers him Winterfell, though, Jon's love for home is always filtered through his commitment to the Watch, his guilt over what's befallen his trueborn siblings, or rather cousins, <laughs> and his general shame over being a bastard. Most relevantly for this chapter... Rob, as Ned's trueborn son and heir, can respond to this tragedy by rallying the banners and riding to war like a proper hero should, as John thinks about in the first half of this chapter. Whereas if John tries to do the same, he'll be viewed as a pariah, not the young wolf, not a great hero of legend and song. And so while his, his younger siblings have to rethink their worldviews and basic concerns for safety, of course, John has this added layer of identity confusion, as he says no matter what he did, John felt as though he were betraying someone. 
And of course, I don't mean to minimize the, the horrible sufferings being gone through by the, the Trueborn Star Kids. Obviously, Sansa is being beaten and Arya faces constant deprivation and danger while on the road in the Riverlands. But Jon has this question of divided loyalties that makes him have a little more in common with someone like Theon. Like, Arya thinks that Catelyn and Rob might not want her back in Storm of Swords, and that really is devastating. But Jon knows for a certainty that Maester Lewin will close Winterfell's gates to him no matter what Bran might want to do. And that's just a different question that's tied up with the, the cloak Jon wears that separates him from the rest of his family, just like Ghost is separate from the rest of the Direwolf uh, family. And underneath that, of course, you have the real kind of emotional, th throbbing, open wound for Jon with Ned's death, which is that Ned took his secret to his grave, the identity of Jon's mother and why Jon was never allowed to know about her, and now Jon feels like he's never going to know. And so this adolescence and emo and blatantly unworkable as it is, this moonlight ride is his way of dealing with that. And it's in part, it's a suicide run. Like he's trying to find closure in a glorious death just like Quentin Martell. Like when John briefly stops before his brothers catch up to him and he's looking back at his ride and he thinks to himself, that run had been truly stupid, an invitation to a broken neck. John wondered what had gotten into him. Was he in such a great rush to die? And yeah, at some level he is. I think you brought up the example of Quentin Martell, I think is really interesting because whereas Quentin is not the hero of the story, as you've written extensively about, John is the hero of the story. So John is going to be rescued from his folly, but Quentin is not going to be rescued from his folly, unfortunately. And, you know, at the same level, as you know, we've talked about in the past too, in various forms, Quentin has basically the command over his friends, Garrison, Archibald, or dudes that he really can't stop John from, really can't stop Quentin from doing anything. But the people that John has, he's not a command of them yet, at least. So they can come and they can hold him accountable and also hold him back from this stupid decision that he's making. Yes, he is riding down the road. He is riding down the King's Road at a breakneck pace, literally. And that breakneck pace is inviting himself towards an early death. But ultimately, you know, it's... <laughs> It's part and parcel of, of John's character in this moment. He is a 15-year-old kid, and in being a 15-year-old kid, he's got a lot of conceptions of himself that are very um, very emotional. So him seeking after a glorious death is very much in keeping with what any 15-year-old kid who has lost a father to, to violence might want to feel. Absolutely. Just as I was trying not to diminish the what the other Stark kids were going through by comparison to John, I don't mean to diminish... The, con the situation John finds himself in. It's com completely relatable and sympathetic and sad in terms of the grief and, and the conflict he's facing. And the, the choices he has to make here and the lives he's caught between are just tearing him up inside. And he's trying to find comfort in embracing an exile identity. So you have this paragraph that, as you were pointing on Twitter, really defines this chapter. <laughs> Tyrion Lannister had claimed that most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it, but John was done with denials. He was who he was. Jon Snow, bastard and oathbreaker motherless, friendless, and damned. For the rest of his life, however long that might be, he would be condemned to be an outsider, the silent man standing in the shadows who dares not speak his true name. Wherever he might go throughout the Seven Kingdoms, he would need to live a lie, lest every man's hand be raised against him. So of course there are shades of just so many other characters in the tone and content of this passage. This is like the ultimate resentful outcast character in her monologue in the song of ice and fire he, he specifically cites Tyrion, and it feels a lot like Tyrion, especially circuit dance with dragons but it also sounds like jamie it sounds like stannis and of course it sounds like john's biological father rhaegar 
And it's it's a conflicted passage and one in which I think George is filtering John's adolescent self-awareness through with like a kind of a wry wink to the audience because on the one hand, John is facing the consequences of the huge decision he's made to abandon his Night's Watch vows. Like he's not kidding himself about what's going to happen next. Like every logistic, every logistical decision he makes in this chapter from leaving in a hurry at the dead of night to his considerations about his black cloak are rooted in his understanding that he has taken the place of Garrod from Bran 1, this oathbreaker who's going to be executed at the drop of a hat. That's John now. And this is a life of isolation and pariahdom and constantly being on the run, and John knows it. But on the other hand, he is romanticizing that more than a little here, you know? <laughs> the way he frames that, like, John Snow, bastard and oathbreaker, motherless, friendless, and damned. Like, he's still kind of framing it in a way that sounds cool, in a way that sounds awesome. And that's the hint that this isn't actually him facing hard truth it's another level of denial it's another way of him not having to actually reconcile the stuff tearing him apart because he can just fabricate a new identity to paper up the other ones he's trying to put behind him and and failing to and he's running away from his problems and that forces a disastrous end to that identity conflict rather than doing what any hero worth their salt is supposed to do which is work towards a holistic solution reconciling all yourselves into a single whole that can do good for you and your community that's the goal here not just choosing one side or the other. And so while we definitely feel for him regarding his grief for Ned, what makes the tone awkward, if appropriate, is is the choice John is making. And it's it's mirroring his decision to join the Night's Watch in the first place. It's very rash, very adolescent. And as you say, this chapter has a lot of parallels with John's first chapter in terms of him running all over the place and having to be kind of talked to by his mentor figures and, and shape his his desires and his skills towards the greater good. And so that, that it kind of brings us full circle and leads us to the big question of what John has learned. And that's, that's the big kind of crucible George is, is focusing on. He uses kind of Eamon's question and parable as this framing device in the last chapter to focus on the question of what has John learned and what's he going to do next. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, you know, John's identity almost feels, when he, when he joined the Night's Watch, it feels like that he was taking off his bastard identity in order to take on this heroic role that he was feel like he was always meant to be as he explains to Benjamin in his first chapter but here he's like I, I could take that cloak off just as easily and I can become this new guy I'll just have to steal clothes and go hunting and uh, make it south of the neck and get over to Rob and uh, that that's not going to really work out I mean that's that's the, pro- the problem with John's thinking here is that yes he is somewhat realistic in the consequences of his action but he still thinks that he can not face those consequences that he could just show up to Rob's camp and be like, ta-da, here I am. Like here, come, I can drive now fight at your side. Right. And no, he, he can't fight it at Rob's side. And the reason why he can't fight at Rob's side is because Rob can't take a deserve of the night's watch into his army. Consider the fact that all of these Northmen who are fighting on Rob's side have a long history with the night's watch at some level or another, even the most, random lord or random lordling in the north is likely uh, is in some proximity to castle black itself and to the wall they know what the wall represents and they know that it's a place of defense and that the men of the night's watch hold the wall from those who could potentially pose a threat to them so rob can't take john back to his side because simply put he would be denying the that the night's watch would have has any meaning in the north 
and would be delegitimizing them as well, and in, in effect, essentially delegitimizing himself. But you know, that still brings up the question, though, of, of John's relationship to his family. A lot of this chapter is framed as John and two camps, of or John and two families, and and you know, it's, it's really interesting because John, being a bastard, has always felt that he was separated out from his siblings, as we talked about in in John's eighth chapter with with Kim Renfro a couple weeks ago. John is all, often, you know, there's that great passage there where John's talking about ghosts as being separated out from all of the rest, and which is, of course, he's talking about himself. He's projecting himself into ghosts as well. And that's in effect here, too, because he's always felt that he is separated out from his nice watch brothers, as well as from his own family. So he is in two camps, and it's really hard for John, even as he's not making the best decisions here. He feels like he's making the choice Eamon told him he had to make if in a different direction from Eamon, but he also realizes at some level that it's it's not providing the closure that he hoped it would. It's, he still feels like he's betraying both sides, both families, and it's not going to work out for either side of him. Every step of the way, he's feeling these nagging doubts as he says to himself, I am doing the right thing, so why do I feel so bad? Like, he admits he still doesn't know whether Eamon did the right thing by staying, which hints that he doesn't know if he is doing the right thing by leaving. It hints that he still hasn't found a real objective answer that he was searching for. And he he finds the answer not in abstract principles, not in the in the list of the the idea of duty that Eamon was talking to him about, but in human connection and the faces he's left behind in both directions. John longs for Winterfell, even as the rational part of his brain acknowledges that Lewin would turn him away. There's that poignant paragraph. Yet he saw the castle clear in his mind's eyes if he had left it only yesterday. The towering granite walls, the great hall with its smells of smoke and dog and roasting meat. His father's solar, the turret room where he had slept. Part of him wanted nothing so much as to hear Bran laugh again, to sup on one of Gage's beef and bacon pies, to listen to old Nan tell her tales of the children of the forest and Florian the fool. Uh, so even as he tells himself rationally that, you know, Lewin will never let me in, even if Bran wants to turn me away, he can't help but long for it and visualize it and think about it. And along the same lines... He eventually realizes that Rob will not welcome him as a brother to fight and die for Ned Stark's memory, as, as John is hoping to do. There's that even more devastating part of the chapter. He tried to imagine the look on Rob's face when he revealed himself. His brother would shake his head and smile, and he'd say, he'd say, he could not see the smile. Hard as he tried, he could not see it. He can't make himself believe this narrative that he's spoon-feeding. He's trying to fantasize. He's trying to create this perfect story in his head like Sansa with, the, with Joffrey and the White Heart. And in the wake of his brutal coming of age, he just can't do it anymore. He can't convince himself that this is how it's going to go. He knows it's a lie. Just, just like it's a lie that he's not leaving the wall because of his attachment to Winterfell. That's what he tells himself, that all those memories of Winterfell, that's not why I'm leaving. I'm going off to fight for my dad. But that's ridiculous. I mean, everything <laughs> Jon loves about Winterfell is everything he loved about Ned. He can't pull those two apart. Those are they're inextricable. They're caught up in this idea of a home that John has lost and is trying to get back. Home is family. And family is home. That's why he wants to go and fight with Rob. So of course those memories are what's pulling him south. And obviously John isn't thinking this far ahead really, but if he went off and fought with Rob successfully, it's probably not like he's gonna return to the wall after that, right? Like you imagine he's resuming back to Winterfell. He's abandoning his vows. He's abandoning the Night's Watch. This and again, this is an unresolved wound on his part because he never had closure with this part of him. He never resolved his wonderful identity before he took on that literal and metaphorical Night's Watch cloak. The need to see Rob smile is wrapped up in the need to know who his mother is. It's to get that validation, to feel like you belong in House Stark, you belong in Winterfell, you have this understanding and affirmation. And 
what John is doing in this chapter to try to deal with that is basically take a shortcut. He's basically trying to cut across his vows he's already made to the Night's Watch and the duty that he knows more than anyone that he needs to uphold, even what just happened at Castle Black with the zombies. And he's throwing all that away in the hope that if he rides fast enough and, you know, tells himself how hard it's going to be long enough, he can just trample those doubts under his hooves. And it doesn't work. And he realizes that it's not just that he's going to betray what he's leaving behind at Castle Black, as we'll get into in a little bit, but it's it's not even going to work in terms of where he's going. He's not even get the smiles he's he's waiting for. So for what is he doing it? And that, that just kind of crumbles as he goes along and he realizes he needs a new foundation completely. Right. I mean, he's, he knows on a logical level that nothing is going to work out, that he's what he's believing that what he's fantasizing is going to happen is not going to work out for him. And so we get back to the idea that he's acting somewhat suicidal here. He's acting kind of like Rhaegar Targaryen. I think when I, when I read this passage, I think specifically about what Rhaegar was thinking in terms of Lyanna back at the start of Robert's Rebellion. And did he have these kind of fantasies that they could start a family together and no one really cared that they had written off? And at some level, did Rhaegar was like, well, that's actually not going to happen because I've seen the realm and I've been the crown prince for so many years now. I know what's going to happen as soon as I break away from, as soon as I seize Lyanna and take her or get together with her voluntarily on her, on her with her consent. I don't know. I, I, I would love to get inside Rhaegar's head at some point. I think that George hopefully will expose us to that and maybe Bran's chapters come the winds of winter. I love the comparison that you make to the Sansa and Joffrey and the White Heart and how this is very much John's coming of age. And, you know, he's almost a man grown as he's, he talks about in, in his first chapter with Benjamin. Here he's making the choice of a boy, but, you know, ultimately though at the end, he does make some better choices that do kind of mature him, that bring him to that do bring him to the fore of, of, of manhood. And he will definitely get his exposure to a mature adult experience north of the wall, of course. Absolutely. That's the thing. John's coming of age, his maturity, his personal growth is tied to the restoration of the Night's Watch mission and the question of what's going to become of the Night's Watch and if they're going to recover their true calling or continue collapsing into disrepair. And as the series goes on, John's arc only becomes more and more caught up with that question. So if the knowledge that his old family won't actually welcome him is one half of what's holding John back in this chapter, the other half is the betrayal of his new family, the betrayal of the bonds he's forged in his time at Castle Black. And this is set up right from the beginning of the chapter with Sam. Sam jumps in the wave of him at the stable, and John has to threaten him, and Sam jumps aside as John rides off, and then John thinks to himself, he hoped Sam hadn't hurt himself, falling like that. He was so heavy and so ungainly, it would be just like him to break a wrist or twist his ankle getting out of the way. I warned him, John said aloud. It was nothing to do with him anyway. Like, John, the very fact that you have to say that out loud to yourself when there's no one else around and no one even brought this up, that lets you know that John is feeling guilty about this, that he's thinking, oh, did I just hurt the most defenseless of my brothers who committed no crime but loving me, the very brother I swore to defend and got everyone else to get together to defend? Did I just inadvertently hurt him? Like, right away, immediately, John's vengeance quest is causing collateral damage. As soon as he starts out literally from the stable... It's already causing trouble, and that's causing him to have doubts about the, the rightness of what he's doing. And you see this theme again regarding Longclaw. The quote is, It had been hard to abandon it, but John was not so lost to honor as to take it with him. Which is right there a confession he feels at least somewhat lost to honor here. Even Jorah Mormont had not done that when he fled in disgrace. Doubtless Lord Mormont would find someone more worthy of the blade. John felt bad when he thought of the old man. He knew his desertion would be salt in the still raw wound of his son's disgrace. That seemed a poor way to repay him for his trust, but it couldn't be helped. And again, no matter what he did, 
Don felt as though he were betraying someone. So he's admitting to this bond he's forged with VLC that makes him feel really bad about doing this, that he knows Mormont didn't have to give him that sword and was making himself vulnerable, given what Jorah did. And now John realizes, oh, the old man's going to feel like it's just been doubled down on, and the universe has kicked him in the balls twice. That's a terrible thing to do to this old guy. And John feels bad about it because no matter what he might tell himself, he actually has forged family bonds here. And these people do mean something to him, and leaving them behind does hurt. And he just, like he's saying, he sees betrayal around every corner with no way to be true to himself and thus no self to be true to in the first place. Like he's, he's thinking to himself when he's wondering if Rob will accept him. He wondered what Lord Eddard might have done if the deserter had been his brother Benjamin instead of that ragged stranger. Would it have been any different? It must. Surely. Surely. And Rob would welcome him for a certainty. He had to. Or else... And yeah, you know, he's, John is doing the Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter mope thing there. They're a little too stuck in their head and a little too stagnant, and that can be frustrating. But it's it's revealing what he's getting at there, which is that this, this tension between love and duty and family and all these these pressing concerns. And thinking about what Ned would do doesn't provide him the answer, just like it didn't provide him the answer when Eamon posed the question to him in his last chapter about you know how would how would Ned handle these impossible moral situations. And John realizes, oh. Maybe my father wouldn't know what to do either, or maybe he would be in the terrible position of killing his own family members. So suddenly, John's righteous crusade to go join Rob gets really complicated. Right. I think that's something that comes out a lot in this chapter is how John is not considering how other people are going to react to his arrival. I think when we look at John, he's very much interior in terms of his reflections. Like, I have to avenge my father. I have to join my brother. I have to, you know, I'm motherless and, and all these, these sorts of epithets that he, that he throws upon himself. Cool epithets, of course. But at the same time, like, he doesn't realize that he is potentially putting his brother in a terrible position of either killing his half-brother or you know, accepting his sword in his service and that having other consequences as well. And what do you do in that situation? What would Ned do in that situation? I think it's really good that John thinks about what would Ned have done if Benjamin had showed up having deserted the Night's Watch. I, I It's a hard question, right? I think we're, we're meant to kind of look at it and be like, I, I, maybe Ned would, you know, somehow get out of the situation with leaving Benjamin alive. But at the same time, Honor compels Ned to execute Garrett in the in Bran's first chapter of A Game of Thrones. It's likely that Rob, being Ned's son and being operating in every single way that Ned had that Ned typically operates in under, would likely do the same thing. He would probably execute John, and that's something that um that that John is starting to realize this as he's making this head this headlong journey south. But thankfully, though. We, John doesn't get really all that far south because his friends come to rescue him from his folly. Yeah, you can say that, of course, you don't want Ned to kill Benjamin, and that's what makes him a good and honorable man is that he wouldn't. But then isn't he just making a privileged exception for his family members over everyone else whom he would execute if they left the Night's Watch? And why does Benjamin get that privilege? And you can turn those same questions around on John at a dance with dragons. Yeah, of course, it's noble and wonderful to want to rescue your sister from the clutches of a horrible person like Ramsay, but... I'm sure a bunch of your brothers have sisters that are endangered because of the war. Do they all get to send Mance Raider to the rescue? If not, why do you get to do it? And that gets at the impossible choices just John is caught between. That a lot of the, the adults in Westeros deal with about as, in about as emo fashion as he does. People like Jamie or Sandor. So we shouldn't, shouldn't judge him too harshly in that regard. What he's doing here isn't executing a plan confidently so much as lashing out in fear and grief because he feels like he has no good options. And what his brothers provide when they show up to the rescue is a sense of a new identity, a life at the wall not as a prison sentence, 
as he as he thinks about it, but as a choice that defines him, that unites him with them. And of course, they learn that by watching him. That's what makes it great, is that John gave them this sense of pride and belonging in his early chapters in the book, brought them together and made them act as a team and showed them a better way than Alice or Thorne. And now they're turning it around on him to demand that he live up to it, to this standard that he set for them. So they are like a manifestation of John's doubts. You spend the first half of this chapter building up John, thinking to himself, uh, I know this is the right thing, but it feels really bad. And I really feel like I've abandoned and hurt people. And I don't know what to do. And then you have these boils turning up to represent that doubt. And Ghost confirms that those doubts are correct when he promptly betrays John's presence to the other boys. Ghost, who is, of course, smarter than he appears, like all the direwolves, immediately lets those boys know that John is, is there because he wants them to find him. And you know, Ghost, of course, as John says... You know, he is the symbol of John's relationship to House Stark. John with his face up against the glass, looking in on House Stark from the outside, close to it but not of it. Ghost represents that relationship because he was found a little crawling away from his little pack of direwolves and, and, and an outcast like John. And so John kind of looks to Ghost for guidance on what his role should be. And just as Ghost does during his John's second temptation at the end of A Storm of Swords regarding Stannis' offer of Winterfell, what Ghost tells John is that you belong here. This is where you belong, the Night's Watch, not in charge of Winterfell. This is your home. This is your place. And so he betrays John to the boys, and the boys come in to stop John, and they don't... I like that they don't provide, like, the full ideological unspooling of why it makes more sense for John to stay. They don't explain why it makes more sense for John to stay. That duty belongs to Elsie Mormont at Chapter's End. What they do is basically just throw themselves in his path and force him to recontextualize his abandonment of his vows as violence towards the Night's Watch and thus towards them. Like, they believe in their vows, they will hold to them, and so he can't just sneak off like a thief in the night. He has to kill them in order to escape, and that's something he proves not willing to do. Like, in terms of all his talk to himself about how he's motherless and friendless and damned, he's going to have to live this dark, dangerous life. And this is the first step, the first test, the first challenge of that new life. And he realizes he can't do it because this is what waving your sword around like a big roguish hero looks like, John. And it's just, it turns out to be too painful and messy. And it, it's interesting to compare and contrast it with, with what happens with Rob in, in the next chapter when Catelyn says that he has, has married his sword. He may have pledged his, his uh, word to marry a daughter of Walder Frey, but he's really pledged himself to the sword on the table before him. And John is trying to marry his sword to that same cause here, but finds himself unwilling to shed his brother's blood with it. And instead, he's forced to ride back with him. So something I'm, I'm curious about, and I want to get your opinion about, is well, the, the question that opened this, this podcast episode was about what John's adventures are going to be inside Ghost. So when John comes back from the dead in The Winds of Winter, which is something he's almost certainly going to do, what is his experience in Ghost going to do to his ideology is mentality because here in this chapter ghost is the one that kind of betrays john and 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 like narks on him to his to his brothers in order to get him in order to get john found out so that that he can't flee south what happens when john comes back is ghosts going to be a little bit different at that point is he going to basically be the person that's going to compel john to turn away from the watch and back towards the politics of the realm and back towards winterfell i don't know it's something i've always been curious what your opinion is on that's a great question. I mean, I think maybe it'll be one of timing that, as John thinks of himself at the end of A Storm of Swords, by that point, they're all gone and he's the only one left, or so it seems. He's the only Stark left to take over the family and keep it going to the next generation. And maybe being in Ghost for a little while will lead him to embrace that part of himself and think of himself as the white wolf and the rightful heir to the family. And that will dovetail with him becoming the king in the north. I don't know. I, I, I think he's... 
John's going to still have a lot of these same identity conflicts, but I think he's going to uh, steamroller his way through them by through sheer force of will in a lot more determined fashion than he has in previous books. A lot like Danny, who is herself is caught on the horns of an identity crisis in A Dance with Dragons and determines to steamroller through through sheer force <laughs> of will at the end of that book. Of course, way back here in book one, you know, we see John more kind of agonized and and basically at the at the mercy of his mentors, as we've been saying in this chapter, and has to take a lot of lead from what they're doing. And so, as you were saying, this kind of chapter, this chapter really builds to the big coach speech from the old bear. And you can see the LC working first to disabuse John of his old, bad, ugly notions before working to replace them with the new. Because what the, what the boys did on the road is just a temporary salve. John tells himself, as you were saying in the synopsis, that he's going to, you know, mutiny and run for it first chance he gets. That You know, the, the boys got him back that night, but he'll run off next chance he gets. And the Lord Commander has to try to actually stop him from doing that. He has to try to find a long-term solution. And so first he lets John know right away that his ever-so-dashing moonlight ride was, in fact, watched and clocked the whole time. I ordered a watch kept over you. You were seen leaving. If your brothers had not fetched you back, you would have been taken along the way and not by friends. Which is great. That whole time John was thinking to himself, oh, i got to run off before they catch me, and i got to do this strategy, and I'm going to do this. And the whole time he was being watched by, by people who were, he had his every move clocked. <laughs> so it was a test, but it was a test that Gior expected John to fail. And he's, he's kind of fine with it, with, with John's ride. The real test is here and now, with what John does in the cold light of the morning when he makes this big decision. Then the LC kind of pivots and gets into really what's wrong with John's plan. And that's where things become relevant for George's argument about the genre and the songs and stories, etc. And I, I love how Mormont puts it. Your brother is in the field with all the power of the North behind him. Any one of his Lord Spannermen commands more swords than you'll find in all the Night's Watch. Why do you imagine that they need your help? Are you such a mighty warrior, or do you carry a grumpkin in your pocket to magic up your sword? Now, on the one hand, it's ironic that the LC is mocking the concept of grumpkins a la Tyrion when he just saw dead men walk and come <laughs> hunting for him. Maybe grumpkins exist, old bear. You don't know. You should maybe keep in a more open mind that you know, zombies are real and back. And he's talking about, you know, Rob having an army and lots of lords and not needing grumpkins or magic, but who knows, Rob might have been saved if he kept his magical bodyguard friend with him at the Twins, just as John might have been if he'd kept his magical bodyguard friend with him post-Shield Hall speech in A Dance with Dragons. But on the other hand, the main point of this little part of the chapter, I think, is that Mormont is delivering the author's critique of the genre's tendency to fall back on lone heroes with perfect swords solving all problems, that you can just be a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior with a grumpkin in your pocket to magic up your sword, and that allows you to just disintegrate anything in your path, and George is saying that certainly that's not how all fantasy works, but it's how a lot of bad fantasy works, and it's a lot how the public image of fantasy works a lot of the time. And that needs to be kind of directly confronted here and set aside to get out what makes Jon Snow different. And I think specifically George is arguing, first, of course, that things like having large armies and, you know, powerful lords bannermen matter more than just one guy. Um, but he's also arguing that these archetypes that both John and the reader are trying to live up to don't solve emotional problems. They can't heal inner wounds. They can't put John back together. Like uh, what Lem Lemoncloak says about the Seven versus R'hllor in A Storm of Swords. Might be your smith can mend a broken shield, but can he mend a broken man or something like that? <laughs> That's what these archetypes and the songs and stories aren't delivering. As Sansa is finding out in her own way and John is finding out here. Like, being Azor High, having the red sword of heroes, being the great figure of legend and song, that doesn't change the fact that you had to kill your wife to get there, to forge Lightbringer. So who are you afterwards? Are you a broken man, a broken king? What kind of grand hero are you at that point? And 
thinking that you can avoid those choices is not only childish but selfish. That's really what Mormont is getting at here, that going to fight for Rob wouldn't actually help Rob because Rob has an army and does not need John. And it wouldn't help Ned because Ned's dead. So it's really only serving to paper over John's pain at cost of what he could be doing for the realm. And that's actually a fundamentally selfish and childish decision, as you were saying. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think like a lot of this, like Mormon is basically focusing John being like, dude, you're being kind of super selfish about everything and that you're not actually going to be much help to Rob and his, you know, his, his, his quest down south. Uh, I love your point about how this kind of critiques that fantasy argument of the lone hero swinging his sword around or, you know, like I said in my synopsis, the kind of man with no name type thing, Clint Eastwood character walking in the good, the mad, the ugly or so or whatnot. You know, this it's, it's good that we have this kind of idea put in, in more realistic lenses. I think, you know, we look at, when we look at John's, what John is offering here and how is his, th- his thought process is going. It's, it's not, it, there are elements of rationality to it, but there's not a lot of reason behind it. There's, I'm going to do this and this will happen after that. And this will happen after that. But Mormont's like, no, look at the overall large scale picture of what's going on. Rob's got a huge, massive army, 20,000 or so men and growing stronger now with the Riverlands joining up with him. What's John going to provide Rob that he doesn't already have at the same time, you know, what is John, what is it doing for John besides essentially allowing John to channel his own inner rage and anger and sadness over Ned's death? And that's ultimately what makes heroes who they are, is that you put aside the selfish and the inner, the selfishness and the individuality and you work for the greater whole and the greater good. So that's that's a big part of what Mormon is trying to get is what Mormon is trying to get across to John that he has to go beyond satiating his emotional needs and look at the greater good and the greater whole. Yeah, you can see the LCMing that deconstruction again at John's moonlight ride that it wasn't this romantic Rhaegar esque you know heroic run, but something that was actually being monitored and taken note of and predicted by the leaders of the Night's Watch. The LC is aiming that same kind of deconstructive gaze at John's idea of being a lone hero with his Grumkin and magic store to save the day for Rob. And then finally, the third deconstruction on the old bear's part is when he says, Your father is dead, lad. Do you think you can bring him back? No, he answered, sullen. Good, Mormont said. We've seen the dead come back, you and me, and it's not something I care to see again. And that's such an important line. It's that dangerous but relatable desire to stop death and bring back our loved ones that lured Danny down the blood magic road, as we saw in Danny 8 and 9. And I, I have to think that George is drawing a deliberate parallel here, that he's, he's setting up, you know, what, what Danny did to save Drogo, with what John is going to be willing to do to avenge Ned. That George is using both Ned's death and Drogo's semi-rebirth to thematically frame his others and whites. That, yes, they are the restless dead, but the point is not only that they haunt us, the point is that we invite them in, for better or worse, that we keep our ghosts with us and take us wherever they go and allow us to, allow them to infiltrate the present and determine our actions and this allows george to focus on our choices as we were saying in danny eight that through all the magical shenanigans and wild imagery going on that that blood magic chapter george had this laser-like focus on danny's choices on what she was deciding to do and why and we see the same thing here john's desire to join rob is as we both said suicidal desperation and danny was experiencing the same thing when it comes to miriam oster and drogo in her last couple chapters and the very fact that the LC is, is linking these uh, these motivations to the Walking Dead hints that perhaps the motivations behind the creation of the Walking Dead were similar. If, if something like what the show did in season six is canon, then 
the children of the forest were feeling their own suicidal desperation. They were taking their own moonlight ride into blood magic and ended up creating something they couldn't control. They made this same mistake, is what I'm saying. And now John has to go through that same kind of gauntlet within the confines of his own story. And so he's, he's broken down and left with nothing and in need of identity. As he says, I have no place. I'm a bastard. I have no rights, no name, no mother, and now not even a father. The words would not come. I don't know. I do, is how the old bear responds. And like he's, he's speaking from an Uncle Sam recruitment poster. And so he gives John that new foundation. And of course, he, he founds it on the stakes of what they're doing. Like you know, the, the political squabbles that John wants to run off and join, that they seem just futile. And not only that, but wasteful in the wake of the darkness they face to the north. Stark versus Lannister versus Tyrell versus Baratheon. It's just meaningless compared to humans versus zombies. But it's not only this that convinces John. I, I noticed on Riri, but I think that the Lord Commander says to John, you were specifically supposed to be here. You didn't just happen to be here. You didn't just come to be because of a rash adolescent decision on your part or because Westeros' social and political system is fucked. You, you were here because you were supposed to be here. You were here for the same reason that that dire wolf mother and her, her pack found you and your siblings. You were here because the old gods want you here and because your destiny is here, not Winterfell. And that... That resonates with John, and he, he was saying earlier in the chapter that, you know, that it, this would be so much easier if he was a member of the Faith of the Seven, because they have their septons to talk to them about God and the will of the universe and how their fate fits into that. And in a way, the Lord Commander is filling that role for John here. He's saying, the old gods want you here. He's almost a, almost a priest in this moment, as much as a military commander. He's saying, you and your wolf, you're supposed to be here, and I want you with me, not just as a squire, but an emissary of the old gods when I go beyond the wall. So Elsie Mormon is saying not just that Yes, John has lost a home, but he's found a new one. He's found the place he was supposed to be all along, and maybe that wasn't Winterfell, and that that really works for John, at least for a while. That's awesome, man. I never had seen that before of Elsie Mormont being kind of the not the avatar, well, sort of the avatar of the old gods, and having this perspective to John that helps him to see that this is his place, as he says at the end of this chapter. Of course, it's also similar to when Ned talks about Lyanna as being this is her place sort of thing. So we have that same sort of connective tissue there too uh, for uh, for for John's parentage. But I think that that's amazing. I think that's, that's really, really cool. I think that's exactly what George is going for. It's just, um, gosh, man, I just, I never, I, I always, I, it's always cool because I never get to see these things when I'm reading it because I, I read this chapter a number of times before we came on air. Um but now getting like your perspective on it, yeah, that's 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 so cool that John wants to have the thinks about having the faith of the seven. Like, oh man, if only I had someone who could speak to the gods on my behalf, if only I had my priest there that I could consult and get God's will. Well, he's got Elsie Mormont essentially acting as a priest of the old gods, and perhaps at some point down the road he'll have Bran too acting as the voice of the old gods and communicating their will for John's future life going forward. And I think that takes us to our foreshadowing groundwork portion, as we have you know, this kind of line here about the old gods that does speak a little bit about the ironic foreshadowing that George sometimes integrates into a song of ice and fire. Yes, indeed. Speaking of being a priest for the old gods and speaking for the voiceless, silent gods that the, the first men worship, you have this line, if the heart trees heard, they did not speak. That comes from John talking about how the old gods don't communicate with him and deal with his identity crisis. But we do see the old gods speak in a dance with dragons when Theon Greyjoy, another half-son of Winterfell, going through a rather more profound identity crisis at that point, ends up disassociating in front of the heart tree of Winterfell and talking about being Reek and wanting to die as Theon, a son of the Iron Islands, and Bran speaks to him through the Winterfell heart tree for a second. Theon thinks the face in the weirwood looks like Bran, and it calls out Theon and Bran, and of course we know that Bran 
is in the cave north of the wall and has tapped into the Winterfell Heart Tree from what we saw in his Dance with Dragons chapter. So the Heart Trees are indeed hearing and they are indeed speaking. And from what we see in Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter, Bran's going to be doing a lot more than just saying monosyllables from the trees. He might be talking quite extensively. So that's that's one of those ways in which Bran kind of encapsulates the old god green seer archetype, but also kind of expands on it in interesting ways and seems to take steps that no one else has done before. Yeah, I think it's going to be really cool. We get more of Brand speaking, and I am very curious to see what Brand is going to say. Of course, well, we both are. Of what Brand's going to say to Stannis out on that, out on the Weirwood trees there, uh, north of the Crofters' village. We also have in this chapter John as a dragon rider foreshadowing. We have this Mormont, of course, speaking because George loves these little ironies here. We have Mormont saying, "You were seen leaving. If your brothers had not fetched you back, you would have been taken along the way, and not by friends, unless you have a horse with wings like a raven." Do you? Well, John doesn't quite have a horse with ravens yet, or a horse with ravens, a horse with wings yet, but he will likely have one come at some point in the future of the story, as we see, as we saw in Game of Thrones season eight, that John becomes a dragon rider, and this is likely going to be something we will also see in the future books as well, as John will likely be the second head of the dragon. The third head is still a little bit ambiguous. A bunch of elements that will come into play in John's Clash of Kings chapters when they go beyond the wall crop up in the Lord Commander's call to arms at the end of this chapter. He mentions abandoned villages north of the wall. He mentions Corrin Halfhand being an active part of intelligence gathering. He mentions Mance gathering all the wildlings together. So clearly George is thinking through, as he did in the, the end of Tyrion's arc in this book, what John's story is going to look like in the next book. Now who knows how many of the details George had planned. I think it's interesting that there's no mention of Craster's Keep in this chapter, which is a fairly important part of John's story in the next book, but he clearly had the basic trajectory worked out and is dropping breadcrumbs for it in this chapter. Yeah, like you said at the beginning, this is basically a next time in Jon Snow's story in A Clash of Kings, where Mormon introduces a lot of elements we will be playing with extensively come Clash of Kings. I do love that Corrin Halfhand mentioned here. I think it's uh, he's one of those characters that I'm very excited to talk about in depth because I've you know, I haven't read A Clash of Kings in probably about three years, I want to say now, and Corrin was one of those characters that always spoke to me at, at deep, intrinsic levels. And then finally, for our foreshadowing groundwork portion, we have this This chapter is the first of John's Three Temptations. You know, as Emma was talking about, we have the offer of Winterfell by Stannis at the end of A Storm of Swords, which is his second temptation. And then we have the Pink Letter and the Shield Hall speech, which comes at the end of A Dance of Dragons. In Storm, Stannis offers John the legitimacy and lordship of Winterfell, Rise as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, and then Ramsay claims this for himself while taunting John to come fight and the pink and the pink letter. And you have to wonder, like, were these things in mind for George at this point right in the story? I, I, I don't think so. You know, especially Ramsay, since he seems to be a character that was invented specifically for Clash of Kings, like we were talking about before, about whether the Crasher's Keep was invented since that wasn't mentioned at the end of this chapter. But, you know, this is interesting in when you think about how George structures the story, because it's very clear that John's temptations are supposed to resemble Aemon Targaryen's three temptations, the one he mentioned in John 8, and of course that general rule of three, which is very important for George's writing. And that kind of suggests that he might have intended this as the first in a series of temptations, even if he hadn't quite worked out the way that the other temptations would go. Again, George as a gardener typically comes up with ideas as he's writing, and that looks to me likely as and, and the other two temptations at least the third one looks likely to be something that george had come up came up with along the way i do think at some level 
George, John was always going to be tempted with a stark name and the lordship of Winterfell. That does feel like something that was set up from the outset, but I don't know necessarily that Stannis was going to be the one that was going to offer John the lordship of Winterfell and the stark name, but I do think that it was likely going to be a temptation, and George just kind of worked out the details as he went along the way in Clash and Storm. 100% agreed. I mean, it makes sense with the rule of three Starks in general, but also very specifically with the example from Aemon's Three Temptations that George had this in mind from the start and that the, all the temptations would swirl around Winterfell and lordship and legitimacy and family and all that good stuff in Jon's storyline. Obviously, it makes sense for one of those temptations to be an offer from a king, but I doubt Stannis was specifically on George's mind. And yeah, I sincerely doubt anything like the pink letter was in the works here because that came out of the tumultuous feast dance writing process and not much emerged in that process that was the, the same as it was going in. So shifting away from foreshadowing and groundwork, we want to close this chapter on kind of a, trying to reconcile these two interesting statements we get from Elsie Mormont at the end of Jon's storyline in A Game of Thrones. He gets the famous line in this chapter, When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? A powerful statement to Jon about where his priorities should be and which war matters for the future of Westeros. But then you have this other chap, other statement that is, gets a little less attention in the previous Jon chapter that we covered with Kim Renfro, as you mentioned. We have white shadows in the woods and unquiet dead stalking our halls. And a boy sits the Iron Throne. So wait, does it matter who sits the Iron Throne during the apocalypse? Or doesn't? Answer me, Elsie. I demand an answer to my questions. <laughs> I, I, I want answers too. I mean, something that struck me in rereading this chapter and now having The World of Ice and Fire published in 2014 and Game of Thrones closing out uh, just a month and a half ago. It's kind of like how remote Castle Black and the Wall is from King's Landing and who sits the Iron Throne question. Whereas prior to Aegon's conquest, Castle Black... You know, they had the Kings of Winter who had approximate relationship to the Night's Watch. And we know from the histories that the Starks and the other northern houses joined up with the Night's Watch on numerous campaigns to prevent various kings beyond the wall from overwhelming the Night's Watch and invading the North proper. But e even so, even after Aegon's conquest, you know, the, the relationship between Castle Black and Winterfell seems to be the more important relationship. Because, you know, in the Catelyn's first chapter in A Game of Thrones, Ned talks about going north of the Wall, where he says, quote, And it will only grow worse. The day may come when I will have no choice but to call the banners and ride north to deal with this king beyond the Wall for good and all. But now the Lord of Winterfell is dead. Ned's dead, guys. And most of the northern army is south of the neck fighting the War of the Five Kings with Rob. It really kind of changes the relationship and maybe kind of forces the Night's Watch to look beyond Winterfell for aid. You know, we do see this in Storm where we have Aemon Targaryen dispatching, dispatching ravens for all the warring kings, warning them of the coming calamity for the, of Mansrayer's army and asking for them to send aid to, to the Wall. And then we see it when Stannis arrives at the Wall and Bowen Marsh conspires to put Janos Slint in as the Elsie of the Night's Watch in order to bring Tywin Lannister to their cause. I know it feels like I'm shifting away from like the initial question of, whoa, should we care about like well, who sits the Iron Throne or, or should we not care about it? But I think like George makes Mormont's mixed message a, a major theme in A Dance of Dragons about whether we should care or not care who sits the Iron Throne or, you know, who even sits the uh, the seat of Winterfell. That that same argument, that same sort of mixed message that Mormont presents to John in these two John chapters becomes a central pillar of John's conflict over his vows in A Dance of Dragons as Lord Commander. You know, John is sympathetic to Stannis, but he still maintains something resembling neutrality in his first couple chapters, even quote, even signing a quote paper shield stating the Night's Watch is not backing Stannis. You know, Stan just happened to come to their aid. That's all that was happening up at the wall. No, no worry. Don't, don't worry about us up here. 
but then you know John is still sympathetically said to Stannis and deeply conflicted over like that that neutrality he has. And just as Stannis prepares to march against the Boltons, John thinks the Night's Watch takes no part. A voice said, but another replied, "Stannis fights for the realm, the Iron Men for thralls and plunder." And then, of course, as we talked about in our episode, our, our whitewashed episode, John gives Stannis a battle plan, tells him where he can recruit most, more soldiers, and then essentially acts as Stannis's secret ally. And you know, even midway through Dance of Dragons, John has emotionally committed, committed himself to the cause of Stannis Baratheon, at least defeating the Boltons in the phrase, if not sitting the Iron Throne, where he thinks John had been hoping for some word from the king. The Night's Watch took no part, he knew, and it should not matter to him which king emerged triumphant. Somehow, it did. So, I, you know, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is twofold, right? I mean, were we John and Dance with Dragons? Would we, you know, care who sits the Iron Throne or not? You know, just speaking from a personal level. And then we also have to ask that, the question, too, like, what objectively is the best course of action, you know, in terms of whether John was supposed to support Stannis or not. I think it's, it's a hard question that, that George presents John and presents the reader too, I think. I completely agree that George frames the John stannis dynamic and struggle in A Dance with Dragons as a follow-up to the contradiction between these two statements on the Lord Commander's part. Because on the one hand, you want to say, yeah, that the Civil War of the Iron Throne is a destructive waste of resources and taking your eye off the ball when the others and the Whites are bearing down on you. And Stannis himself says something very similar in Storm of Swords when he shows up at the Wall and is first talking to Jon about the subject. But on the other hand, you could flip it around and say, no, who's in charge matters most when there's a giant zombie army bearing down on everyone. That's when you need someone in charge who takes it seriously and has organizational competence and the right people in charge and the right relationships to gather the continent against such a threat. And uh, you, you see that, that push and pull constantly, especially, as you say, with the North kind of being depleted of manpower and leadership. So what the central government does, of, of central government of Westeros does about these questions become more important than ever. And so then you have this question of whether that involvement in the Game of Thrones can be separated from the questions of love and family and home and all the things that the Lord Commander says the, the men of the Night's Watch need to need to give up because you know once once you start caring about who wins the game of thrones once you start caring about which king sits the iron throne because one of them namely stannis came to your aid and the rest didn't can you then prevent yourself from getting involved in in the southern affairs from a more family affair and a more personal level and john finds out that he can't that once he starts getting involved with stannis as you say early on in the dance with dragons what does that inevitably lead to it gets him tied back up in winterfell and the fight for house stark and suddenly it's about his family again and that was he was inevitably going to go down that path once he got connected to Stannis. The political questions and the personal questions are always tied together for John, because House Stark, one of the you know struggling factions in the war, is his family. So of course you know though their rising and falling fortunes is going to matter to him in a way that the Lord Commander can't quite address. Like he can't quite admit that that's the answer to his question of do you think it matters who sits the Game of Thrones? Like the answer is well no. But that's still the system we're drawing from. Anything we intend to do about it is going to be drawing from that system. And once we draw from it, then we can't just pretend our families don't exist in the way that you want us to. And to get back to your question from way back at the beginning of this episode about how the Lord Commander doesn't frame this as, hey, John, you want to protect your family? You want to keep Winterfell safe in this time of war? Stay here. Defend them from the wildlings and the others. That's more important and more useful than you going off to join Rob. But he doesn't make that argument that this is about defending Winterfell and his family. And this is in part, I think, because his family, his feelings towards his own family aren't that great. When he talks about how uh, he can barely stand to be around Mage, 
And then says, that does not mean my love for her is any less than the love you bear your half-sisters. And then he pauses to think about it and says, or perhaps it does. And he's kind of admitting that, yeah, he's kind of like a sour, isolated old man. And what Jorah did to him kind of broke any connection he really had to House Mormont at that point as a family. So he doesn't really have the same dilemma John does. So of course he's not putting it that way. And so that means he can't really square this contradiction where he's telling John that you have to give yourself to guarding the realm, but you're not allowed to care about it. And you have to pretend that the governance of the of the realm to the south doesn't matter, but at the same time, you know it does matter and has, is going to have a huge impact on how you deal with these conditions to the north. And like I said, we're going to see that so poignantly with John and with Arya in A Dance with Dragons, where it's like, how do I protect my family and the realm and the wildlings? It's 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 all too much. And in general, I think this speaks to a larger failure to fuse family and duty in a way that could have made sense of what John is going through. Consider what John thinks when he says he'll make his proclamation to to stay at the wall, where he thinks, forgive me, Father, Rob, Arya, Bran, forgive me. I cannot help you. But, but you know, like you said, like, Mormont frames this whole thing about what's more important, your family's war or your other family's war. But, well, God damn it, Mormont, why don't you frame it as John? By fighting north of the wall, you're protecting your family south of the wall, like you were saying. Hell, why did Mormont himself say something about that? Was he's That's what he's planning on doing as Mage's brother. But I think you make up the great point. I think you made the great point that... His relationship with the mage is not all that strong. So he's like, eh, maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter, really matter. I mean, John is helping Rob, Arya, and Bran at this juncture of the story without, you know, knowing what's going to happen in the future of the story, which we, we do know anyways, by going with the Night's Watch north of the wall. And maybe it would have done some long-term good had Mormont said as much to John here instead of it instead of him trying to make it an us or them equation and problem that John has to like compete with his head, because these questions aren't going away for John. John is going to be very conflicted about what's the right thing to do and whether he has and having to choose one identity or, the, or another identity. And he also is conflicted too about whether he should be backing the one king who seems to be the guy who actually recognizes the true threat to everyone, or whether he has to play this neutral part and allow the guy who's seemingly done a, a whole lot for the Night's Watch to go off and die. It's it's a hard question, and maybe if Mormont had framed the discussion and his way of convincing John to stay with the Night's Watch in, in a better light, maybe some of all this could have been avoided, but probably not, but probably not. But probably not, and we don't want to be too hard on the old bear, because he is making a great heartfelt argument to John about this is where you belong, this is where you can do some good, this is where you were meant to be, this is the fight that matters. But I, at, at some level, he doesn't make that argument about family, not only because of his tumultuous relationship to his own family, because he senses, oh, if I make this about John's family, he's just going to keep going down that road and it's going to eventually lead him to riding right back to that castle again. I got to try to cut him off from that as much as you can. And that's always a bad sign, you know, like the, the, the Sith are the people who tell you to give in to your darkest, deepest desires. And the Jedi are the ones who tell you to cut yourself off from them and pretend those desires don't exist. And that might technically be better but it's not workable and it's not going to produce a positive outcome. And so there is still that hole in the Lord Commander's argument. And I think that's uh, it's an interesting thing that George does with a lot of John's mentors is though John values them and they give him a lot of interesting advice. They're also all cautionary tales in their own way and they were all brought down by their own kind of failures and shortcomings and John has to learn to do better. And I think that the Lord Commander is a pretty clear example of that. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us for Game of Thrones John 9. Thank you everyone for listening to this chapter, our final John chapter. Just two to go, guys. We got a we got a hell of a chapter next week. We'll talk about that in a second. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. 
check out our Patreon if you haven't already yet at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us at Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at Notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. So join us next week for a Game of Thrones Catlin 11, in which we'll be joined by none other than. I'm trying to do the drumming sound with my tongue, it's not really working. Stephen Atwell, who's coming back to join us of Race for the Iron Throne to discuss Rob Stark being crowned. We gotta gotta say this in unison. King King of the North! North. King of the North! Oh man, this is gonna be so exciting. My heart is already fluttering at the thought of talking about this with you, of course, this amazing, interesting chapter, as well as talking about it with uh, with Stephen Atwell too. It's gonna be a lot of fun. For sure. We had a great time with Stephen when he came on to discuss Edward Eleven. Uh, a few months back when Ned was on the Iron Throne sending out the group that would later become the Brotherhood Without Banners, which is a great nuanced discussion breaking down the politics of that chapter. But it's going to be nothing compared to breaking down the, the politics in Catelyn 11, which is kind of like the great political culminating moment of the entire book in the same way that Danny 10 right afterwards is the big magical culmination of the whole book. And no one writes about the political side of A Song of Ice and Fire better than Stephen done great work for years on Race for the Iron Throne so we're just thrilled to have him back it's going to be a great episode thanks again for listening we'll see you guys next week